Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat. My name is Matt. I am a science enthusiast. And before I jump into anything, I just want to acknowledge that I am speaking from lands traditionally owned by the Bilia Noongar people. I'll pass it on over to you, my illustrious. I feel like I've used that. <laughs> that's very uh, not illustrious. Very, used hey, that Matthew, adjective before. Can we get before. a definition of illustrious? It's just the first adjective that came to mind. Let me just do a mm -hmm. quick little define <laughs> colon ear. You don't even illustrious. know. Illustrious. You're describing know. me as things nice. that you don't even know the word, the meaning of. Well known, respected, and admired for past achievements. So you know what? I'd call that accurate. My illustrious co-host, okay. Kate. Oh. Wow, I'm starting this episode with such a large ego. Thank you, uh, Matt. Yeah, I, I am here too, and I'm also joined by a wonderful guest who I will introduce in a second. But before we launch in, I want to acknowledge that me um, and our guest are recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wawandari people. I'm Kate. I'm a neuroscientist, the regular, regular resident, illustrious <laughs> scientist of this show. Gosh. Um, and I'm joined today with with by I can I can sentence I'm joined today by another neuroscientist which is really exciting this is this season is the neuroscience takeover of Curiosity Killed the Rat and I'm here for it um Yulis, hey how are you going yeah, good thanks a uh, little bit about myself yeah I am launch also in. a neuroscientist I come from a schizophrenia lab uh, specifically psychosis mm. and in my lab we're trying to figure out uh how schizophrenia can develop in the brain and see if we can prevent that mm -hmm. uh, or, or change that later along the track. So I'm focused very much on brain development mm -hmm. in a, with a schizophrenia lens on. Yeah. Oh, this is so exciting. Is that, is that what we're going to talk about today? I guess so. I'll see how we go. Uh, but I'm very passionate about brain development. Yeah. Brain so development. That's, that's Brain development is some cool stuff and definitely some stuff that I learned about back in undergrad days and haven't really done much because like my research is much more you know brains that are already developed mm. and then experiencing the world and substances etc so my my brain development knowledge is rusty and I'm I'd be keen I'd be keen to relearn to brush up and mm. I know Matt how much do you know about anything to do with the developing brain I don't know much about brain development honestly the only things I've really heard about it are in the context of what we're taught in schools or warned about in schools when it comes to the use of substances and how that affects brain oh, development. Look at as this. Like it's a, the overlap. Like the whole our... idea of, you know, if you, if you smoke marijuana or drink alcohol before you're 25 or something, then that is supposed to severely impede your brain development. So it, it affects young brains a lot more than it affects older brains. And that was sort of the scientific basis for cautionary tales we were told in school for, you know, mm. don't drink and do drugs, kids, because you'll fuck up your brain. Wait till you're an adult and then you can handle it Wait better. till you're an adult and you can fuck up your brain then. Yeah, you, you know, when, when you're of sound, um, your brain's more resilient to fuck uppery um, than as a kid. But, but that's, that's about the extent of what I know. And I guess the idea of, you know, formative years when you're younger your mind's a bit more pliable you know it's easy to you can learn a musical instrument when you're younger a lot easier than you can when you're older because your brain is more easy to kind of mold into you know different mm. shapes you know metaphorically and learning speaking. like picking up languages um, and stuff yeah whereas it's a lot easier. harder to yeah. learn that as an adult um yeah because i guess as a kid you're you're taking in all that stuff and learning how the world works and how to survive um 
that is the breadth and depth of my understanding of brain development. Cool. And so thank you for listening, everyone. That has been another episode. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Honestly, that's a pretty thorough um, covering of the basis. I think everybody should know. Yeah. Yay. Earlier, it's more plastic. Public schools. More, your brain's a bit more squishy, um, more pliable. And then as you get older, it's, uh, yeah, you can take a few knocks more. Mm. Yeah. But why? why is that? <clears throat> I mean, it makes sense logically is that when you're, when you're smaller, you've got to learn all of these skills that you don't have. Your brain has mm. got to start from scratch and it's got to get really good, really fast at things. Yeah. But then you don't want your brain to be too easily uh, like molded by your environment as you get older. So like you don't want to be 60 and uh, all of a sudden develop like uh, an aversion to, you know, grass or something, something like you don't want to learn too easily as you get mm. older because if you learn too easily, you can form poor associations. So in, in Is there less risk of that when you're younger, like forming aversions to like grass, for example? When you're younger, you kind of learn more easily. Um, your, your brain is a lot more plastic in that mm. it... But it, are you more likely to like when you're young and you you obviously need to learn literally everything because mm. you're you're you know pushed literally out into nothing. this world and you're like oh what is that green stuff like I don't know it's, it's grass and you're gonna predominantly learn that grass is a good thing right that it you know it makes the world look nice it's whatever I'm I'm going with this grass analogy now because we're sitting in front of a window and there's an awful lot of grass outside. <laughs> That's yeah, all I can think about. Um, I mean, we could go into a debate about you know grass lawns over you know a more biodiverse lawn that's actually better for the the planet and stuff, and maybe grass oh, isn't God. as good as we thought about. Yeah, but but you know, that, that's just now me being a dick. Now you're just being fun. difficult. No, my question <laughs> is more just like I guess yeah, is there more risk of forming bad? or, you know, incorrect associations and whatever when you're older than younger? Like, are you, like, why are you more likely to learn the right thing when you're younger as opposed to older? It's not, you're just, I think you're just as likely to learn the wrong thing, but you can just as quickly unlearn it. Mm. So like, for example, with, uh, with PTSD, it's when you form an association and that, Mm. that really strong association is, having a negative effect on your life and mm. to treat PTSD, you want to unlearn mm, that association. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to do that when your brain is a lot more uh, moldable. Um, so like at the moment, there's uh, lots of psychedelic drugs in clinical trials that are trying to reopen that earlier mm. plastic period of de- development where you can uh, unlearn or relearn things easier. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how that affects things like, Speaking on PTSD and trauma, you know, a traumatic event in childhood versus a traumatic event in adulthood, you know, as a child, your brain is much more pliable compared to adulthood. So does that mean you take on trauma more easily as a kid because your brain is more pliable? Or does that also mean it's easier to overcome that trauma because of the pliability versus adulthood where you don't have that same pliability? I mean, it's both, Both, right? yeah. Yeah. So I feel like when you're younger, you're definitely like you're definitely more likely to be affected by events or like encode them as quote unquote traumatic. Um, And if you get the appropriate therapy at a young age, you can unlearn that and stop that being a lifelong thing a lot easier and a lot quicker. But if if you don't figure out to like adulthood or don't like address it or don't whatever until later in life and like you haven't had a chance to unlearn that or whatever, and then it's going to be really stuck in your brain a lot 
more concretely than something that you face in adulthood. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That that makes sense. You know, I think about, you know, I I started learning piano from quite a young age and a lot of the songs Mm. that I used to practice and play back then, even if I haven't played that song for years, I could sit down at a piano and bust out that same song. But then, Mm. you know, even using the same instrument, a song I try to learn today as an adult in my 20s, I, I play it a couple of times, I get familiar with it, then I go away for a while, I sit down to try and practice it, and I've completely forgotten every aspect of that song. I need to get mm. the chords back up, I need to get the manuscript back up. But the thing that I learned when I was a kid, without much um, other external poking and prodding, I'm able to resurface that. That's just kind of stuck with me, that was molded into me from a young age. Mm. Yeah, so it's an early early memory, and it's a song that you would have been you would have played many, many times. So I guess it's about rehearsal. You formed that memory um, and that you built in that song uh, into a memory in your brain ages ago. Mm. And even if you only practice it every few years, you're still having regular recourse. So you're still reinforcing it. So that's why it's a solid memory. Whereas if you're learning a new song, even if you practiced a lot of times in one day, it still needs some time to sink in and you need to keep recalling it. And uh, it's, yeah, practice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you need to work your memory. Yeah. So do you know why? Because, like, I know that I definitely learnt that, like, you know, when it comes to practising music, for example, or, like, studying for an exam or whatever, like, if you're going to cram for an exam, don't do it the morning of the exam, do it the night before because, like, a good night's rest will help reinforce those memories, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, doing stuff in between, like, having sleep in between your rehearsal or your revision or your whatever form of learning that you're doing why do you know why do you know what sleep what does sleep do that reinforces sleep, memories sleep does a lot of things i don't know anywhere near enough about it mm. as i should but it first of all uh, you start it like heals your body a bit like recovers your yeah. muscles and stuff uh, from a day of work i say that like i do more than just sit on my chair um <laughs> you pipette you work yeah those yeah thumb yeah i work those thumbs and you know uh. i walk back and forth to my chair in the lab um but it also um helps reconsolidate those memories by just uh honestly like buzzing through what happened during the day and also getting rid of things which seem irrelevant your brain is really good at unconsciously filtering stuff which is why uh you, you know you'll filter out uh, maybe what you had for for dinner yesterday because it doesn't really seem important. But if you had like a big, uh, powerful experience, like, I don't know, you stub your toe really bad yesterday, <laughs> I think you're going to remember that because your brain is yeah. like, well, we don't want to do that again. Yeah. Mm. Your main specialty is in um, schizophrenia, you said, mm. and yep. the, the the developmental things that that lead up to that. What are, what are some of the causes that lead to schizophrenia? I don't know too much about it as a condition. Is it largely a hereditary thing can anyone get it oh yeah do we want to you know take a couple of steps back and do just like a quick little schizophrenia 101 for anyone that's not familiar at all beyond um yeah so possibly the very poor media portrayal of schizophrenia that exists uh yeah the the portrayal of schizophrenia is quite terrible and uh i think it's probably because it's hard to explain in a way that's not too scientific but also Mm. sensitive to the um yeah community yeah uh so schizophrenia is obviously it's on a big spectrum uh there's a range of different symptoms there's positive negative and cognitive but generally someone who's on the schizophrenia spectrum will be likely to have delusions um Mm. and often hallucinations 
and be a little bit withdrawn from reality. So it might Mm. be something like, and when I say hallucinations, people always think like visual hallucinations, but visual Mm. hallucinations, then they're they're a lot more rare. Um, It's generally auditory hallucinations, hallucinations, which I think are like 80% 80 of the hallucinations are auditory. Yeah, Because that's like your your typical like hearing voices. Um, I guess because... um, a visual hallucination would be a lot more disruptive. So yeah. I guess, yeah, if it's going that far, then yeah, a lot more disruptive for your brain. Um, so like, it might be like an auditory hallucination, like someone just saying like, oh, uh, you know, you should kick that pebble or, <laughs> uh, you know, like a little voice in the back of your head saying, uh, you know, your neighbor is a spy or something like that. Just like weird, uh, like, delusions which are paired with paired with auditory mm. hallucinations which like a quick little i guess matt do you know the difference between delusions and hallucinations because i know that this is I a thing that don't. is not what, necessarily what, what i was wondering as well with the auditory hallucinations I, I, I imagine maybe it would be both or different but are they often more like does it sound like someone in the room with you is talking to you or is it like your own imagination voice in your head like someone inside your head talking to you and then I know delusions would be like, I don't trust anyone around me. The, the idea mm. of con- the world is conspiring mm. against you, yeah. or you delusions are more the yeah. I was going to yeah. say like the beliefs, yeah. the intrinsic like like, like the hallucination is hearing someone talking to you. The delusion is they what they are. They telling feel you outside do. of yourself. Like even yeah. if they feel well, actually, yeah, it's a good question. Do you know if they feel like it's someone in the room or someone? In I your actually, head? I actually don't know. My yeah. understanding, I think. Um, is that it It does feel like it's coming from inside of your head, but it doesn't feel like it's your voice. Like there is a disconnect. It could be like, and, you know, uh, some of the theories in terms of like where these come from, like we, we all have kind of voices in our head, quote unquote, to an extent, right? But we, we yeah. recognize them as our own internal voices, right? Yeah. Our own internal monologue, dialogue running on. But we know that it's coming from us, but there's some sort of disruption in that pathway, in that interpretation of that internal voice that it no longer feels connected to your sense of self. It feels like it's coming from someone else, even if it's inside of you, which is terrifying to think about. Yeah, very terrifying. Like, you know, I... I have a lot of thoughts going on in my head constantly. I, you know, seven different conversations happening all at once. And the idea of like feeling disconnected to those or feeling like they're outside of my control because they're mm. not like, that's, that's scary shit. I, you thought that just occurred to me. Why is it that so often these hallucinations are ones of delusion? Yes. You hear voices. Yes. You see things. Why is the portrayal of schizophrenia so often, you know, go kick your neighbor's dog or your neighbor's a spy and the world is against you. Why, why is the delusion so tied into schizophrenia? I think it's because of the disconnect with reality where your reality would be very different to someone who is, uh, who is like neuronormal, um, in a sense Mm. and doesn't have, uh, these, these same delusions or, or symptoms. So when you have someone who's got a different set of beliefs, your first thought, I mean, this is just works for anybody as well. When you've got someone with a different set of beliefs, Mm. your first thought is 
they're they're weird. Yeah. Like it's yeah. It's not. It, I'm the weird one. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'm I'm the normal one. It's the people around me that are weird. Mm. And like, I don't think it is always like this is the portrayal because this mm. makes for good drama, right? That it's yeah. always like go kick your dog or like my delusion is that you know like the world is spying on me, which like is definitely true for some people. But like, you've got delusions of grandeur where you think like, oh, I'm. Christ, for example, and yeah. like I am fantastic and everyone should worship me. Like it's not always like a, a negative thing. So like when we talk about that's that's I guess another point. Like when we talk about positive and negative symptoms, quote unquote, this is where I just love whoever was in charge of naming this shit. It's really <laughs> dumb because it's just I think it's really counterintuitive. People are like, oh, negative symptoms, things that are bad, positive things symptoms, things that are good. Mm, yeah. And that's not what that means, like at all, right? Because positive correct me if I'm wrong, but positive symptoms are the ones that are like the addition of something that wasn't there before, like a hallucination exactly. or a delusion or something, you know, that, that didn't exist. And negative symptoms are the removal of something. So like low yeah. mood and stuff falls yeah. into yeah. that category, which, you know, both of those things are negative in the sense they have a negative impact on your life. Positive and negative as in addition and subtraction as opposed to yeah. good and yeah. bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I just... You know, medical jargon is so... Yeah, it's not, it's, not, it's not as intuitive as it tried to be. There. No, yeah. no. Yeah. But, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I think that's where, yeah, media portrayal and whatever of schizophrenia really falls short and lets you down because it it goes for the, the things that are going to lend itself to the best narrative or the best conflict or the best whatever, right, which is yeah. not always necessarily the type of hallucination or delusion Um and like those things can be separate. Yeah. They're not, mm. it's not that your delusion is necessarily tied into the particular hallucination that you have, though our brains love to make sense of things, mm. right? So say you're getting an auditory hallucination where a voice is telling you one thing um, and you've got a delusion that can be mildly linked to that. Like your brain is going to try and link those things because that's what makes the world make the most sense finding patterns in the chaos like how we see random faces and stuff you know yeah yeah like i mean we we all do it even people who don't have schizophrenia like who's to say that <laughs> the whole world isn't a hallucination like you could get into the whole visual system and exactly, yeah. how it all works and how it is pretty much oh i went down a deep rabbit hole at one point in high school getting into philosophical ideas like solipsism and that we could go down a tangent if we want to but we'll probably ease ease back from that and i want to talk about schizophrenia and where at what point in your life does it come around is it a hereditary thing or mm, is it something that yeah, can like be where thrust does the upon you can stuff link in yeah with the yeah that's probably the most interesting part for me um so it's it's a combination of both both your genetic predisposition so uh how likely you are to uh to have it or be affected by it mm -hmm. and then also your environment um, mm. and by that, I mean, like you could be exposed to, um, <clears throat> drugs or alcohol really mm -hmm. young, um, which can impede development and mm. lead to schizophrenia like symptoms. Um, but also things like, uh, early life trauma. Mm. Um, so for example, when you look at the genetic risk factors for schizophrenia, yeah. even if you added them all up, it would or like cumulative, cumulatively together, you'd yeah. still only have like a 20% chance of developing schizophrenia. Yeah, okay. Um, and there's like studies where they found that if you are living in, I think it was in London, if you're living, if you're a, um, if you're a Caribbean person or Jamaican person, 
and you grew up surrounded by um, in in like a suburb that was that had a high population of people that mm-hmm. that, that looked like you were from the same ethnic group, you were less likely to develop schizophrenia than if you were um, oh, of wow. that ethnic group and grew up in a largely white group. Okay, um, where it's just like. I guess it's alienation, just, yeah, alienation pressure, feeling, uh, that know, disassociation like that. from you and your reality. If you're already getting that disconnect, mm. I guess it can be further impeded by those societal pressures because, you know, historically white people ain't nice to people that are different from them. I, guess. <laughs> I don't no, know. Not, even historically. not yeah. I was going to say historically yeah. is currently is a I'd say read a book, but even just look outside. It's, it's, it's not great. Um, yeah. Yuck. But that's 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 very interesting. And then there's like other studies where um, if you were born in winter, you have a slightly higher chance of developing schizophrenia. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah, and that might be because of the rates of pneumonia and complications yeah. during pregnancy, um, or maybe uh, slightly or like lack of food in comparison to other mm. times. Um, but there's a there's a bunch of genetic factors and then environmental, and it's how they interact yeah. that we're trying to figure out because. I think it's the same with, well, it's not the same, but it's similar with a lot of uh, a lot of diseases where you've got genetic disposition, yeah, and then you've got environment and yeah. how they interact um, is could be completely different. Like you've got I a mean, lot of twin studies where you have twins that grow up in different environments, and mm. even though they've got the same genetics, like one um, might have like a higher IQ or one might be you know better at sports or something just because mm. of their environment. Yeah, twin studies are really good for that sort of thing. Like I, the fact that twins exist, first of all, is just like, that's really cool that we just, we have this population of people that have the exact same genetic makeup and we can literally study what impact the environment has on all of these different outcomes because yeah, you, you've got a control, you've got a control twin. You like, it's a good control. Yeah. I kind of, um, I always imagine like, clinical uh, psychologists or people that do those kind of studies always like seeing twins in public and going like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a fun TikTok I saw recently. It's a little bit tangential. Um, a person who was a, um, I forget what the actual name for it is, test tube baby, but they inseminate um, outside of IVF, IVF baby. Um, it was, you know, early days of doing this, I think like late eighties, early nineties. So they made a whole bunch of them. So I think they made about like, you know, nine or something different embryos outside and they put two of them into the mother and twins came out and froze the rest of them. And then about four Mm -hmm. years later, they wanted another kid. So they took one of the frozen kids out. Um, the doctor said it wouldn't work, but then it did end Frozen up working. Frozen kids. Frozen kids. This is such, yeah. I, I'm, such I'm, a choice used, of language. Continue. I'm, it's, I don't know. Language is, language is fluid. If I'm conveying the message, I'd say it's effective communication, despite it being aggressively layman's terms. Anyway, put the frozen kid back in the mother. And then <laughs> that, that kid ended up being born four years later. So this woman was born, you know, four years after her elder twin sisters, but because she was from the same right. set, she's technically the third triplet, but she was born four years later. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's really common with IVF to, to, you know, 
use a bunch of eggs and and try mm. to fertilize a bunch of them because the success rate is, is low. very yeah. low. Yeah. And so this is this is incredibly rare. First of all, that like both of the initial ones were like taken to full term and then that a third one was also able to be carried to full term and, and not just that, like that four years later after being frozen whack. for four years after conception so these three people were conceived at the same time they um you know identical triplets but mm. yeah one was uh but born four years apart that would be really interesting triplets, sorry, to but... look at um just from a scientific perspective of yeah what influence environmentally you know, you could get some really interesting, like, sibling mm. order, quote unquote, science out of that as well, in terms of, like, you know, being the, after after your parents have had four years practice, you know, raising kids, you know, <laughs> what effect does that have on a whole range of outcomes for you? Yeah, there'd, there'd be so many variables there. There'd be like, well, are you still in the same house um, that mm. your older siblings have been raised? Uh, your mother, she's four years older. That can make a big difference. Mm, um, in terms of even just yep. like the pregnancy. And... Also, I think I'm pretty sure that um, the more kids you have, like the slightly, I think your immune system is a little bit more aggressive towards mm-hmm. the fetus each time. Like it, it does. Yes, there is and a difference. you're more likely to be gay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that there's a, see with... a previous episode yes. where we go into that. I can't remember which one, yeah. but there's there's something. I think about it might have. I think it might have been sibling science when we talked about when mm. we did a lot of talk about twin studies in that so. one as well. That would make yeah. sense. Which is yeah, yeah. That was a bit of a that was a bit of a sidebar. Sorry, but I thought I thought y'all would find no. that interesting. And since we're on the topic no. of twin studies, <laughs> absolutely, that's fascinating. But yeah, to you know, bring it back to what you were saying in terms of the the interaction between like genetic predisposition and then environmental factors sort of mm-hmm. triggering this genetic predisposition. Like that's obviously similar for like addiction as well or like alcohol. Like you, for example, you know, you cannot get addicted to alcohol if you never drink alcohol. Like straight up, mm. it's not going to happen. You're not going to be born addicted to something that you have never consumed. That's just your brain doesn't know that it wants to want it because it's never had it I was going to say, what if you are, what if the mother is drinking while um, pregnant? That's a whole different. Because that's then a whole you're different, consuming then you the could, alcohol you could argue anyway. That potentially yeah. like you were getting alcohol via, yeah. you know. So let's just assume that, that your mother was, you know, sober for her entire pregnancy um, and you're born mm. with one of the, one of the, you know, genetic factors that, that gives you a higher genetic predisposition, genetic likelihood of developing an addiction, but then you never touch alcohol ever. Um, you're, you're not going to develop that addiction. Mm. Like I can, I can tell you straight up and just like, you know, also you might not be born with any of the, the genetic predispositions that we, we know about yet. Um, <laughs> And you can drink alcohol and end up addicted to it because of the way it as a substance interacts with your brain. But like both of these factors exist and they interact and it's almost like you need the trigger. And then some brains are more likely to get like have your reward system hijacked by these substances and and cause this like compulsive craving that other people are fortunate enough to not experience Um, but yeah, it sounds like a similar thing here with schizophrenia, right? But like harder to study, I would imagine. Like, I don't know how you would go about something like schizophrenia that has so many factors. Like, I don't know how you would study that link between genes and environment. Like it is difficult to study, but I guess there's, because it's such a 
a broad disease and because there's so many factors that come into play, you can look at it from multiple different angles. Mm -hmm. There's different uh, theories for how it develops. Some people think it's uh, these specific kinds of neurons, Mm -hmm. uh, um, GABAergic um, or glutamatergic. Other people think it's more in dopamine, mm-hmm. that neurotransmitter, and my group thinks it's more neurodevelopmental. Mm. So what we're doing is um, we're looking at maternal immune inflammation, which is oh, where interesting. Yeah. Um, a pregnant a pregnant mother, um, generally I think her second trimester is mm-hmm. the most um, easily affected mm-hmm. uh, when they get infected by a bad cold like influenza or something. Yeah. Um, and then that can impact the development of the baby a little bit. Um, but very subtly, and then later on in life, um, they're more likely to develop um, schizophrenia-like symptoms. Mm. So if you look at the uh, the Spanish Spanish influenza, mm-hmm. um, twenty years after the Spanish influenza, um, kids who were in the womb when their mothers got sick mm-hmm. had a much higher rate. Um, and you've got that around around the world in different in different studies, um, and that's because it's not the disease mm. perturbing that development. It's uh, it's the mother getting sick, and then your body have a, having a big immune inflammation reaction to try and obviously get rid fight of fight off the illness. Fight off the illness, but that um, that inflammation then can affect the uh, the developing mm. fetus. So it's not the the disease itself. It's not the uh, the influenza it's the that's affecting system. the baby. It's the it's inflammation. It's the immune response. Yeah. Well, I wonder because, then what that's going to mean mm. in you know twenty years or so post pandemic, right? Yes. If we're going to see a bit more of a spike mm. on in 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 rates of schizophrenia in yeah new kids. Um, very topical. Yes, we are quite worried about that. Mm. Uh, rates will be quite high, um, which is, I mean, for a lot of diseases as well, because uh, even in adults, um, mm. it can it can have some neurotoxic yeah, effects. Issues. Yeah. So COVID, I think um, in terms of research in the next 20 years, we're going to have some really great research. It's not going to be good That's news, a great though. framing of it. Yeah. It's a, what a silver lining. We're going to have some fantastic <laughs> yeah. science that comes out of this. We're going to have a lot of people not doing well, um, but the most, the best we can do is learn from it. Yeah. That's what a positive spin to take on such a negative thing. Mm. You know, at least we can learn more about how the brain works. And do you think, is it because when your immune cells, so when your immune cells and your immune system like gears up to fight off the virus or influenza or whatever, um, you know, the way your immune cells can tell not to attack your own body, like, you know, it, they're good at being able to be like, oh, nope, this is own cell or like own cell that is healthy versus own cell that is sick. You know, you can tell that in the mother, but because the the, the child or the developing fetus like is is not the mother is that the issue like your immune cells aren't as able to be like hey probably shouldn't mess with this because it's not it doesn't have your cells don't have the same flag of like i am the mother's cell and i'm healthy please don't hurt me not not so much it's more so that uh when when your body's gearing up for a fight against against a pathogen against mm-hmm. when it gets sick it's um all your cells a lot of your cells are going to start releasing inflammatory factors Mm -hmm. and just a bunch of signals that say like it's go time you know it's like it's essentially yeah your your body your your body's going into like wartime like there's no time for like you know other non-essential stuff it's about Mm. like necessities and then 
harsh environment to get rid of. A child to term healthily becomes less of a necessity than keeping mother alive in terms of your body's exactly. So, like, if you get really sick, generally, um, generally the fetus will abort. Mm. Um, so in in my lab, when we when we were developing the uh, the mouse model, uh, we had to um, the the person who was working on it, Mm. she really had to. play around with the dose dosage mm. because too low and the inflammation, it was, there was barely any inflammation um, hitting the fetus yeah. too high and the fetus um, wouldn't survive. Wouldn't survive. Mm. Um, so we had to get it just right where we had a good, good amount of survival. We had like 90% survival, but mm-hmm. we had a good amount of inflammation. So we'd be sure that we'd see some effects later down the track. Mm. And I guess just related to the question of like, or the, the topic of a mouse model, what does schizophrenia look like in a mouse? Oh. Like symptomatic wise, like I, you obviously can't ask a mouse if it's having auditory hallucinations or, you know, delusions. Hey mouse, do you think you're a rat? Like what, what does schizophrenia look like in a mouse model? So, uh, what we're looking at is we're looking at some of the cognitive learning symptoms. Yeah. Right. Um, so people, um, people who, who suffer from schizophrenia, generally they are, um, their learning associations, um, is a little bit a little bit different. Um, sometimes they form the wrong associations. Sometimes they don't, they don't, um, form them as well. Um, and you see that effect quite strongly, um, when you look at like a spatial learning task. So when I'm just saying like, you know, this, Mm. this is what I was taught to press on like a, on a triangle symbol, I was taught Mm -hmm. to press the lever. Um, but not when I see two triangles or, Mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, so we're doing touchscreen spatial learning tests where it's just very, very simple kind of, uh, cues, Mm. um, and they'll they'll tend to perform a bit a bit worse. Uh, we're also looking at pre-pulse inhibition, which is when you have like a uh, a startling beep, mm-hmm. but to warn them of that startling beep, we'll p- play like half the sound of that beep beforehand. So you get like a beep and then a big beep. Yeah. But because you get that preliminary beep, kind of... your reaction to it isn't as isn't as bad. Yeah, because you can kind of like yeah. brace yourself <clears throat> yeah. and be like, oh. Big you, beeps yeah. are coming. Yeah, because you know it's coming, so you're able to, like, brace yourself and tone it down. Mm. So um, their pre-pulse inhibition, their, like, startle rate after it's been, after they've got that little warning, um, tends to be also very different. Yeah, so they, they're, the warning, they're less, they don't understand the warning as much, is that? It's more so the um, the, the association and the, uh, the behavioural adaptation that that warning provides. Mm. Yeah, so they're just like, you know, maybe aware of the warning, but they can't then make the next connectional step of like, oh, I need to brace myself for something that's coming. Interesting. The thing is, um, we can't say for sure, I mean, with a lot of mouse models of disease, you can't say for sure that it's this disease. You can say it's mm. quite, it's similar to, well, yeah. um, and with ours, maternal immune inflammation is also a model for autism um, where you have disrupted, yeah, okay. disrupted development. Um, so we also see, uh, sometimes some autism like, uh, stuff, but the, what we're working towards it as more of a schizophrenia like um, things, but it's not to say that it's not, you know, in the middle or along the spectrum of the two, because, you know, they're not two separate diseases. It's just, we just, we like to categorize things to make things easier for ourselves. It's just sort of arbitrary categorizations we've given to a lump of symptoms that are often together. I mean, that's, that's all the DSM, you know, is the DSM, the diagnostic, diagnostical statistical manual of mental diseases. Um, 
that you know psychologists and psychiatrists will use to diagnose humans um yeah that's that that is all that is is we've gone these symptoms usually co-occur in someone let's give it a label and then like you know that that absolutely serves its purpose in terms of like trying to figure out what treatment is going to be right for an individual Mm. like it, it can be a helpful thing to be given a label for your clump of symptoms but also i think it's just I, I almost of, think it gets treated too much as a Bible of a, a like, rich you know, kind of like regimented things, but it's more like a, a massive Venn diagram of overlapping circles mm. where there are a bunch of symptoms in them. And it's like, well, you've got this cluster of symptoms that's sort of in this circle that we've said is this thing. So we'll say you have this thing, but that circle probably in overlaps with a bunch of other different diagnostic yeah. things you could put it with. So some symptoms Absolutely. of schizophrenia probably overlap with autism, overlap with ADHD, overlap with this, overlap with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are all just kind of arbitrary labels that we've made up and put on things to best explain I don't think they're what necessarily we consider to be arbitrary. I think that's too strong of a, okay. like, you know, it, there is definitely basis to how these things are clustered. And then also, you know, in terms of looking at where they come from developmentally, like what causes these things, a lot of these symptoms can have a common cause, whether like, you know, is that inflammation due to, you know, illness in a pregnant mother, right? Like we can be like, oh, this one particular factor led to all of these symptoms co-occurring in this individual. Like it makes sense to give that thing one label, right? But it's always just like with the asterisk of like, more complicated than that but yeah we do need some framework to operate around in terms of providing treatment for these individuals because like these are very debilitating conditions in a lot of people right and we need some way to be like you know okay let's give it a title so that we can decide on a treatment plan moving forward like i don't want to get up here and completely shit Mm. on our whole way of of diagnosing and treating mental conditions because I think it is important and it has its place but I just I think it's important for a lot of people to be aware that it's it's, continuous not discrete yes yeah and it's the same in terms of medication as well if you think of it as too discrete like okay we're gonna lump this person in as having schizophrenia we're gonna give them the same drug that we give everyone uh, that's not how things works. Different mm. drugs work for different people and in different combinations depending yeah. on where on the spectrum um, and their just their personal individual selves. Mm. Which, you know, moral of the story, the brain is complicated, man. <laughs> we haven't figured it all out yet. <laughs> uh, I, honestly, I doubt we'll ever figure it all completely out. Uh, it's just... Not in our lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> the, more, the more we know, the more we don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's... I feel like I say this every episode. We don't know what we don't know. And that <laughs> is the problem. That is the crux of all yeah. of it. Um, but I mean, that's but why we do science to, learn, to try and right? figure out more, you know, and not just mm. kind of reach a point where we're like, well, probably won't figure that out. Guess, you know, we'll pretend it's magic and move on. You know, mm. there's still, you know, the quest to try and figure out as much as possible, pass that information onto the next generation of scientists so then mm. they can figure out the next mysteries and, continue ad nauseum until humanity goes extinct and you know knowledge is power the more we know about the brain the more we can help our own brains Mm. Mm -hmm. speaking of the brain and schizophrenia what Mm -hmm. actually is going on neurologically to cause what we call schizophrenia to occur isn't that the million dollar question (laughs) like like what from from what people have have seen you know obviously like you say it's different from different people and um 
you know, it's a, it's a spectrum. So it's not just one thing that happens in the brain. You're like, this is schizophrenia. But by and large, what have we seen to occur in the brain that causes this different from a neurotypical brain? All right. So a lot of things, there's a lot of variety. Um, I'll go from top down. So in terms of brain structure, you see some regions that are smaller or larger than than, than average than you would see in, an, in someone who, who doesn't have schizophrenia. Um, you also see connections between certain regions as stronger mm. or weaker than others. Um, and then, yeah, we talked about the behavior um, in terms of when you get down to the nitty gritty neurons, um, you see connections being like associations and connections being formed where neurons are talking when they shouldn't, when they shouldn't be. Whereas neurons that should be talking more are talking less than they should be. So you've got like some connections weaker than they normally should be and some stronger than they normally should be. And, uh, in my lab, we focus a lot on volume, on the volumetric and the, um, connections between the brains and how they're affected, um, particularly in the hippocampus where you've got um, different regions of the hippocampus which show um, poorer connectivity than others um, and actually a slightly reduced volume, <clears throat> probably because they show, show poorer connectivity where if mm. you don't use an area as much, it's going to shrink a little bit from uh, from. It's just like a muscle. Yeah, yeah. You use your bicep more. The more bicep yeah. curls you do, the bigger your bicep. Brain is just the same. Yeah. You do mental bicep curls. So is it usually those same segments of the brain that are miscommunicating, for want of a better word, um, through most cases of schizophrenia? Or is it different from case to case where just all sorts of different parts of the brain can be doing the wrong thing? It, it tends to be the same the same regions. Um, so like you'll have strange connectivity between the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is basically just like a small part at the front of the brain <clears throat> that's really important for executive function. Mm-hmm. So executive like, function, yeah, being like decision-making <clears throat> and um, yeah. that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. Decision-making. Yeah, decision-making and just like, just think like top of the pyramid in your brain. So like your like, conscious you know, thought. I'm going to makes... take a walk um, to the shops so that I can get sticky tape so that I can fix something that I just broke. Like yeah. it's that, uh, higher order, um, thought functioning. Um, so yeah, you have weird connectivity there. And then also in your hippocampus, which is where a lot of your learning and memory is happening, mm. um, where you're forming. Because if you see a hippo camping, <clears throat> you'll never forget. That's how I learned to remember yeah. that the hippocampus <laughs> is the memory part of the brain. Um, oh, I like that. if you see a hippo camping, you'll remember. Mm. Anyway, that's my little, <laughs> that's, that's all I have to say about the hippocampus. Um, uh, I just like, um, I like the name of the hippocampus as well because um, it's named after the shape of the seahorse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it Greek or Latin or something um, for seahorse, little yeah, seahorse? Yeah, Latin. Latin. And because if you look at the, the brain and the, like, yeah. the, the shape of it, it, it can look like a little A particularly seahorse-shaped mm. wiggle in the crinkles <laughs> of the brain. Yeah, yeah, right on in there. Fun fact, though, in the mouse, it doesn't look like that. It just looks like a tiny little sausage. Oh, um, so yeah. it's, uh, it's not as fun as a Sea sausage, yeah. sea cucumber. Yeah, sea cucumber. Yeah, it's very So how do you, boring, how do you know that that's find. the hippocampus in the mouse? Is it just because it's roughly in the same area and you see it responds in a similar way when you poke it with electricity or needles or whatever you poke brains with in the lab? We have an atlas. We Yeah, we have an atlas and... Like well, the brains are, are different, but we've like mapped 
the differences and okay. like we know it's it's mm. a very obvious structure yeah the yeah, hippocampus okay. is actually because it's like those two little yeah. bulby thingies on the like, side if i cut like down the middle of the brain and i peeled back the outer the, the outer layers the, the cortex mm. Um, and like, you could see like more of the middle stuff. You'd be able to see in between the middle stuff and the cortex, just two like little sausages. sausages. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and we know like people have spent years, um, and like so much time essentially, yeah. Mapping and, and creating this like atlas so that we're at the point now where it's not up to us to figure out, oh, this is this brain region because it responds to whatever. We can literally look up in a book and be like, oh, so based on this little squiggly line on the skull, if we go back this many millimetres, down this many millimetres to the side this many millimetres, we will land on this particular brain region. Yeah, um, awesome. Which is really cool, I think. Like I, yeah. I, I, the ratless is what I call the <laughs> rat version of it because... That's, That's what, what I you use work with. a lot to find like brain regions that I'm interested in. Um, it's surprising that people can do this by eye as well because I mean the rat brain is mm. is small but the mouse brain the is mouse tiny brain as is well. Like it's a peanut. It's yeah, it's the size of my my pinky fingernail, uh, which yeah. obviously you can't see because but, but pretty much everyone yeah. like if if you listeners look at your pinky fingernail, like that's that's a mouse brain. Like it's Aww. they they ain't big. So cute. They're very very <laughs> small. Yeah. yeah. And really the main difference is that they have um a much bigger olfactory bulb. So the olfactory bulb mm. is just the smelling part of the brain. Yeah. And <clears throat> we don't smell or we don't need to smell as much as mice do. Mice mm. are a lot more and rats are a lot more reliant on it. So they have a much mm. bigger olfactory region than us. So it's just like yeah. a little extra blob on the end on of their the brain. top two. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the way that like we're able to categorize like the hippocampus is really easy to see, but some other nuclei and stuff that you're just like, how you know, you just draw a circle around this region. How are you saying that this is a different brain region to another is that, mm. you know, people have looked at the different neurotransmitters or the different receptors or the different whatever. Yeah. So that we, the an- yeah. The answer to your question is a lot of hard work that has yeah. been done by people smarter than mm. us. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But. Or just like uh, just a, a handful of people who are very meticulously over decades just mm, like combed through, yeah, combed through. and categorized <clears throat> and yeah. like Brodman areas. Yeah. So Brodman areas are named after a guy named Brodman um, who went through the brain and meticulously looked at the structure and the um, like under a microscope with some staining um, and was like, this part of the brain looks a little bit different to this part of the brain. And he found, I think, 52, 52? 52 different 52, areas yeah. um, that looked different under the microscope and a lot, and it turns out a lot of those areas have um, actual different, different functions as well. Mm. And they hold up surprisingly well after, I think they're what, a hundred years old? Yeah, at least. Um, it was very early yeah. in the like brain kind of structure research that Brodman did his stuff. But damn. Yeah, brains are cool. I don't know if you knew <laughs> that I thought that, but I just in case you guys weren't already aware, I think brains are cool. Uh, I'm just looking at the time and how we're going, and we'll probably shuffle onto the listener question soon. But before we do, was there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you particularly wanted to, you know, chat about? I'll just cycle back to the whole um, gene and environment mm. thing um, and how we're working with our model of schizophrenia. So currently... I'm looking at that maternal immune activation, yep. which is just like messing with development a little bit yep. um, <clears throat> so that uh, you'll they'll come out with schizophrenia-like symptoms. Yeah. 
Um, but then we're also um, planning our two-hit model, which mm-hmm. is an interaction of um, of genes and environment, but at two points along uh, development, because then okay. you're more likely to get that developmental perturbation. So what we're doing is uh, we're looking at one of the biggest rich, um, risk factors is uh, marijuana use oh. in adolescence. Interesting. Yeah, I yeah. So it just comes right back to what <clears throat> Matt was saying at the start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, where you've got different critical periods for different things, but uh, kids, if you're around like 13, 14, if you're in like, if you're a teenager, don't chronically smoke a lot of weed. <laughs> it is no good. Um, you are much more likely to develop schizophrenia. Um, obviously much older, the older you get, the better. Um, and fun fact, uh, which I found on a, uh, deep dive in my literature review mm-hmm. was that, uh, one of the main negative side effects of, um, of marijuana usage is that, uh, obviously it affects your memory a little bit. Yeah. It has a negative effect on your memory, um, where your memory worsens a little bit, but when you get older to around like 60 ish, that actually flips that effect where Ooh. it makes it where it makes where smoking makes your memory improve slightly interesting oh. so there's some sort of um developmental it's not like a very late development like age age switch yeah. um, in function of your cannabinoid receptors which is what marijuana acts against yeah. um and how it affects your learning and memory um, yeah, so don't blaze it up young, blaze it up when, <laughs> when you're you 60. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got plenty okay, of time. Good advice. So Hopefully by the time we hit that retirement age, it'll be legal here in Australia. <laughs> and like, mm. you know. Not in some places, but is that active smoking of it or just the effects of it? So like if you smoke a lot in your young life and that affects your memory and then you stop smoking as you get to 60, do those memory effects start to flip or would you have to start actively smoking it again in order to see maybe those positive memory uh, this effects? This is, this is, this is active. Um, okay. But <clears throat> in general, also don't, don't smoke super young because the point is that it's perturbing your development a little bit. Yeah. Um, and the cannabinoid receptors, they have a surprisingly important role mm. in development um, and especially in learning and memory uh, consolidation formation. So, mm. uh, and that's like a critical time. <clears throat> Adolescence is when your your white matter, which is like the connections between your different brain regions, that's when they're like really growing and forming and consolidating. Um, and you don't want to disrupt that too much uh, with yeah. too many things. I mean, with any drug really. But um, yeah, one of the biggest risk factors for schizophrenia is... Um, is teenage marijuana usage. Mm, so the age restriction on substance use is, in fact, yeah, gr- yeah. grounded in science. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the biggest um, debates with legalizing marijuana is uh, is just that you don't want you don't want kids and teenagers using it. Mm. Uh, but like honestly, but it's it, you it's, know it's, it's the same as alcohol though, right? Yeah, but alcohol is so much worse. Considering oh, well, because, alcohol yeah. is <clears> so. <throat> yeah. Bad. I. This is a whole rant that I could do for ages. Alcohol is the yeah. worst. But this is the thing, right? If mm. if we're okay with legalizing alcohol for anyone above the age of eighteen, then surely mm. the adolescent argument doesn't hold up for marijuana because mm. we can also impose an age restriction on it, and in fact, then regulate it and who actually gets access to it more easily if it is yeah. legalized and you have to show ID <laughs> to show that you're above a certain age in order to purchase it. I don't know. So I have a lot it, of thoughts, but... In your opinion, if you're comfortable giving it, what would mm-hmm. be the 
ideal legal age to start smoking marijuana that that is like offers the 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 least um detriment towards a developing brain if you had to put a line in the sand somewhere if i were to put a line in the sand that was pretty safe i'd say 25 uh for when the brain has mostly stopped like developing and then starts to age a bit more but Mm. you you could put it as early as 20 but 25 would be a lot safer but obviously in terms of people uh you know experimenting with drugs i think 20 to 25 is probably the most kind of that time period yeah if you were to put it at 25 uh it might not be as effective yeah i think yeah okay if people really want to do different drugs, they're going to do it. So it's better. You may as well legalize it and then just control it, but also educate people. Mm. Yeah. 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 Cause people don't know much about drugs. They're just like, Oh, it does. Don't this do them. Stuff. They are yeah. bad. <clears throat> That's about all you're taught really. Yeah. yeah. You're, yeah. It's well, it kind of, it's, I feel like the way drug education is taught in schools very much mirrors like sex education in a lot of very conservative, schools mm. where you're not taught how to have safe sex you're just abstinence told not is to have the best it. birth control then, well exactly so you're sort of just told not to have it and not taught anything about it and then people are you know they're gonna go have sex anyway because mm. humans are gonna human isn't right? it isn't it double uh, twice the uh, the rate of teenage pregnancy in yeah and also schools? like stis and all of these things that you're just not taught about and how to deal with safely because you're just told no and you go but what if yes and i feel like <laughs> drug education is kind of there because you're just told no and you go oh but what if yes and you just do the thing whereas if you were told okay well we know you're probably going to do drugs and but like here are some things that you should probably keep in mind to do those safely like i think that's just far more sensible um and then there's double standards with alcohol which is an integral part of uh, australian culture society yeah you commiserate with it you celebrate with it you and then coffee for example coffee Mm, is a drug but coffee is the caffeine i think coffee was the most common drug I think I had an argument with a friend. Yeah. It was either coffee or alcohol, but I think coffee. Caffeine is the most consumed Cons- drug. Alcohol is the one that does the most damage. Yeah. So in 2019, there was a massive drug harms analysis study that looked at all of the drugs. Where we're talking crystal meth, we're talking alcohol you know more than everything. everything. Alcohol came out on top in both the categories of harm to self and harm to others. It was the most harmful drug to use, like in terms of shit happening and going wrong to you, and also you are more likely to cause harm to others if you've consumed alcohol much mm. more than like any other drug, any other drug. Um, and yet, yeah, it becomes and like remains an integral part of our society and culture. And I think that that, quite frankly, is fucked. But, you know, And caffeine, as you say, <laughs> is often kind of an overlooked one as well. Like the fact that mm. a kid can go into a shop and buy like 10 cans of any energy drink, right? Yeah, true. Which Not is just an coffee, obscene just amount like... of caffeine. And on the can, there'll be a little thing that says, you know, don't consume more than two consume a day. But nothing's stopping that kid yeah. from chugging energy drink like a soft drink, you know? Mm. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the negative effects of caffeine are long term and that, and obviously, probably not as bad as alcohol and things like that. But I think it, it's something that's often overlooked is how accessible caffeine is to people of all ages and how it is Mm. overused and abused. And I think it'd be interesting to do an episode on caffeine one day. Mm. I feel like we've briefly touched on caffeine or coffee and how it works in the past, but yeah, an episode mm. on in yeah. more detail. And you could get any, any researcher as well. Cause they're all, yeah. cause we're all caffeine, caffeine addicts. addicts. Yeah. Um, well, that's it. That's, that's it. 
I, I mean, we, we, we talk about, about such harsh <laughs> regulations on so many different drugs, but not caffeine, which, you know, if you have a large amount of it, you could fucking have a heart attack and die. Oh, absolutely. You, know, you could people it's, Especially probably now more... that you can, it's very easy to buy caffeine powder, which is like just mm. straight caffeine. What? Yeah. Um, and there's like a few circumstances where like you've just had like some kid that's like, oh yeah, I'll have like two spoons of, of uh, caffeine powder, but that's pure caffeine. And then they'll, uh, they overdose and die, which, yeah. is, which is crazy. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry, that was a bad note to end it on. No, no, <laughs> that was good. Cause it was really interesting. I just, I think it's, I just think it's really interesting that, yeah, some of our, you know, laws around mm. stuff like this are based on like based in science and some of them just absolutely aren't. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just where we, where about. we draw the line. The takeaway I'm getting from this is smoke weed if you're old, have safe sex, don't drink too much caffeine. That's the message for the children. Uh, yeah, wait till you're 60. That's the message. Smoke weed when you're 60 um, or maybe use oils or vaporize it because smoking is bad for your lungs. Um, use a condom. Good pro tips. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but also, yeah. <laughs> I hope you guys learned something about, you know, schizophrenia, brain development and how those things intersect. It's been, it's been an interesting, uh, mm. chat. There was nothing more on that particular topic that you wanted to. Oh, uh, I could go on, on, go on for hours, yeah, but I think we'll um, call it there. <laughs> okay. Well, I think with that, I, it makes perfect sense to shuffle onto the listener question. And actually the whole talk about substances, uh, segues wonderfully into this particular listener Ooh. question. Um, because it is a question about alcohol and, and my answer is one that anyway, I'm just going to read <laughs> the question and give my answer because that okay. makes the most sense. Um, so the question reads, so the alcohol blanket slash jacket dot, dot, dot legit by that. I mean, drinking alcohol obs makes you feel warmer, but is it actually causing you to warm up or is it just an illusion? Will it help mm. if I'm at risk of hypothermia? It's a good question. It is a good I've, question. I've heard that. Think? I've heard of that before, and I've also heard that it is a myth. Like I've mm -hmm. heard there's that classic tale of the cook of the Titanic, I think is the most famous one. Oh, um, supposedly the, the chef, one of the cooks from the Titanic, when that sank, the way he survived is he just drank a shit ton of brandy or whiskey or something, and that helped him keep warm and fight off the hypothermia. I, I don't... Yeah, nah, it, fake it, news. Since, Absolutely yeah, it's, fake it's news. I mean, I haven't heard debunked, that, but... But I think that's what that person swore by and how they survived it. And I think that's an urban legend that's been around pop culture for a very long time and maybe only in the last 10 years or so kind of been more mm. understood that it's been debunked. I think I may have seen it on Mythbusters or something, but I yeah, couldn't yeah. tell you any of the science leaning towards or against either argument at all. I just know it was a mm. myth and that it has since been shown to be a myth. Well, yeah, you're absolutely uh, correct that it is a myth. And in fact, it's not just like a myth that it'll keep you warm. It will do the opposite. Like it'll, it'll, it'll fucking make you more likely to die of hypothermia. Um, ah. But like, yeah, despite like, so it definitely, there is no disputing the fact that you feel 
warmer, right? Like we've all mm. had a drink and been like, oh yeah, I don't need to wear a jacket. Like, you know, you've especially you, you get people that flush and you know, you, you feel the warmth and that's, or even if you like, have like a, a higher alcohol percentage spirit, you can feel the warmth going down your throat. Well, you that's, know, that's a, very... a different, I'll explain that as well. Oh, actually, okay. That's a different <laughs> thing. That's a whole different sensation. But like in terms of just the, like the, the alcohol blanket, alcohol jacket, like you're, you know, you're out clubbing on a cold night and you don't need to wear a jacket if you've had a few mm. drinks because you, you know you just you feel warmer um yeah. the reason for that is because what alcohol actually does is it makes the blood vessels like close to your skin surface expand it's the thing called like vasodilation right where so all your blood vessels close to the skin surface expand and all of the blood from like deep inside of you rushes to the skin surface that's why you see that like flushed kind of face warm yeah you know whatever right but that that isn't you know that isn't you sensing your core temperature. That's actually the like the nerve endings that have the thermoreceptors on your skin, like sensing that warmth of your blood. Like it's actually coming from your own core temperature. And then it, this is how it actually does the opposite is because once all the warm blood is at the skin's surface, like it, you're going to be losing heat to the environment. And that can be exacerbated by like sweating or whatever. It's mm. actually one of the core ways that your body, you know, if you are out in the desert and you're hot, like our body will expand our blood vessels, send all the blood to the surface. And so we can leak heat essentially and cool down. Is that down. also what makes you bleed more if you've got alcohol in your system? Is it that it is a blood thinner as well? Or is it just that it brings, expands your surface blood vessels, brings more blood to the surface and that's um, what I makes think more it, of it, it is actually out. a blood thinner as well. So okay. you don't form, you don't form the scabs or scars or platelets don't do their thing as effectively. But yeah, that would definitely be a contributing factor if like you okay. cut your skin and you've got more blood at the skin. Yeah. you'll probably bleed more shallow cut yeah 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 um because it's yeah it's the skin surface capillaries so like that that is you know <laughs> that is why it first of all does the opposite because like weirdly our perception of like how cold or warm mm. we feel is like we don't have thermoreceptors on the inside right like we we yeah. cannot actually sense our core temperature like our core temperature is normally around 37 degrees celsius right yeah but we don't feel that what we are sensing is the environment we're sensing like how cold it is outside how cold it mm. is you know on the skin and so yeah alcohol does this thing where it like literally sends your blood to the surface and then you lose heat but also it like so that's number one of the like reasons why <laughs> it's not going to help with hypothermia and you're going to lose um you're going to lose heat but also well like alcohol makes you stupid right like when when you drink you make real not clever decisions like you know yeah. oh i'm outside and i'm not going to wear a jacket even though it's snowing and the biggest way humans protect themselves against hypothermia is behavioral adaptation we wear jackets we light fires we shelter from the cold um so if you, you drink alcohol you're losing that number two there was a study that actually found that drinking alcohol inhibits your shivering response which like so that's another way that we stay warm yeah. so we, do, we shiver right um alcohol makes you feel like you don't need to do that um so once again reduces your ability and your tendency to shiver and stay warm. And number three, it can actually mess with your hypothalamus, your thermoregulatory center in your brain. So like the, it's essentially your body's thermostat. Like this is the part where all of the decisions 
are being made as to like, do we constrict or expand the blood vessels? Like, do we shiver or do we sweat? You know, how hard do we need to like beat our heart in order to send blood around? Like all of these things are governed there and alcohol can mess with that. So you're just, you're just making all of these, like all of the things that we do to keep warm, alcohol is just like, yeah, but what if no? Um, but also yeah, you're just going to okay. feel warm. So you're not going to feel like you need it. Um, and so like, yeah, it's actually just like the worst possible thing you could do if you're in like a cold survival situation is drink alcohol. Yeah. Um, okay. There you yeah. go. <laughs> what I'm yeah. hearing is alcohol then is similar to caffeine in the sense of caffeine doesn't give you energy. It just tricks your brain. It gives you the illusion thinking of you're not tired. Yeah, pretty much. So alcohol it, doesn't it, make you warm. It just tricks your brain into thinking you're warm and that you don't need to warm up. But then it's worse than caffeine in the sense of it's actively making you colder as well, but then also preventing you from feeling that cold. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Cool. It is. And like that, that is why, you know, yeah, we, you do get people dying of hypothermia as a result of being drunk in cold environments. Like, it is a God thing that happens. God knows how bloody old mate from the Titanic made it then. <laughs> I feel like it's just he didn't. Um, or the Oh, story I believe he, if he, he probably thought that he was, you know, going down and drank a lot of stuff. Maybe he just, you know, got luck. lucky, had a large amount Sheer of body dumb fat. Look. Maybe I he made know. a raft out of all the bottles of liquor he drank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know. It could work. They're buoyant enough, maybe. Yeah, That's how who many knows? He drank. That's... Who knows? But I can tell you, it wasn't the alcohol that protected him from the cold. That that I can tell you with almost great certainty. But I do also quickly want to like touch on what you said, Matt, about how like drinking mm. the alcohol, you feel the warmth as it goes yeah. down. Huh. Yeah. So this is really cool and and really interesting because what's happening there is when you drink the alcohol, the the ethanol molecules are interacting and like binding with you you may recall from previous episodes where we've mm. talked about the trip v1 receptor do you remember do you remember that yeah receptor? that was to do with like spiciness right mm. yeah and you so... don't actually yeah it's it's your it's the chemicals activating your receptors in your body that respond to temperature that respond to heat and tricking that into thinking you're feeling heat when there's no heat present Yes. So you're right. Chili, capsaicin, the, the molecules mm. in, in, in chili that make chilies taste spicy, mm. they bind directly to these receptors and activate them just like something that's hot would, right? Mm. Something, and the threshold for these receptors is like 42 degrees Celsius. So the capsaicin is going to bind and your body's interpreting this as hotter than 42 degrees Celsius, just like mm -hmm. if you'd consumed some real hot soup or something. Ethanol does something slightly different, which is really cool. It, it binds to a different spot on the receptor. And instead of like activating it directly, it changes the temperature threshold. So instead of 42 degrees being the temperature in which these things start sending signals to the brain being like heat, 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 it brings it down to 34 degrees Celsius. So it drops it to below your core body temperature. Because if you remember what I said before, your core body temperature normally sits 37. at about 37 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So you're so, tasting yourself? So, yeah, what's hot is is not the drink, it's you. Mm. Wink. Oh, so, um, and then that's kind of why it will linger around afterwards. I assume it's happening while those molecules are still coating your esophagus, and then when those get washed away, you're no longer tasting that or not tasting sorry feeling that sensing it yeah it's it's your body, body heat it's, it's your yeah. yeah as the ethanol goes down it's it's the blood the hot, the 37 degrees Celsius core body temperature blood that's kind of like come up and near your throat and chest and whatever 
that your your body's just like, oh, this is this is hot. This is above 42 degrees because that's what your brain's learned to interpret signals from those trip V1 receptors as, as signaling that it's hotter than 42 degrees when actually it's now only 34 degrees. So, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. Um, alcohol a, is a, so a weird. A trick I found when I was, you know, 18 or 19 was... I think I, th- I can't remember if I mentioned this on that episode when we were talking about it last time with the spice, but I would have a menthol before doing a shot of vodka and the coolness of the menthol, which I, I believe worked the same, but in reverse tricks your shit into thinking it's cold, have a menthol, your body's wired up for the cold. So then when the alcohol goes down, uh, it, it balances out. So then it's just more of a neutral temperature rather than being too hot or too cold. Except that your body uses different receptors for heat (sighs) and cold. So like, you're absolutely correct in saying that menthol does the same thing, but kind of in, in the cold sense, it will Mm. signal to your cold receptors. It will bind to those and it'll be like, Oh, this is a cooling sensation. So you'll experience it as like a cool temperature as opposed to a hot temperature, except it's not the trip V1 receptors. It's not the same receptor that either gets activated as hot or cold. You've got heat receptors and you've got cold receptors. And so you could have a bunch of like capsaicin, like a bunch of chili and a bunch of menthol together and just have like a horrendously unpleasant <laughs> sensation of both. Like they're not going to cancel each other out. They are different things. Yeah. yeah what, okay. does your, what, what does your brain interpret it as? Uh, just both together. Yeah. Chaos yeah. probably. Chaos, yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, did you think to, that the menthol? I, you, I, I, it's been years since I've done it, but I found it helped. I'm, I'm just notoriously bad at doing shots or large quantities of, mm. of strong alcohol. And I, I mean, found it, it helped with that. So I wonder whether it, yeah, it could maybe act to mask it, it on the, a cognitive level in terms of like your brain is receiving both a, oh, this is cold and a, oh, this is hot signal. Like if you ate, you know, you had a, a sausage roll with an ice cube on top of it is for some reason the <laughs> like, imagery that I decided to have like a really hot <laughs> sausage roll with an ice cube on top of it. Disgusting. Don't know why you'd do that. Let's go with an affogato. That's a much better analogy. Yeah, hot coffee ice cream inside a hot cream. coffee. And you have those things like both at once and you get a hot signal and a cold signal you know, you can kind of sense both of those things, but your brain can only give so much attention to any given thing, right? So like if you're receiving both signals, whichever one is stronger might be the one that you pay more attention to and you're more aware of. But I would say that like, you know, if you have like a habanero chili and, you know, have a chuck a minty in your mouth at the same time, like it's not, you're you're still going to experience the spice. spice. Like the minty is not going to save you. It, Sorry. it might also be that you're just giving your brain a bit of a, a warning to prepare for mm. that. Even though it's a different sensation, your brain is thinking, I'm going to be ready for any yeah, temperature anything. sensation. Temperature stuff is yeah. going on in the mouth right now. Be prepared. Mm. That's true. And the body can be kind of fucky with um, temperature sensations. Um I, in terms of like boiling hot versus icy cold, you think you're about to experience something boiling hot and you experience icy cold and you feel like you burn yourself. Mm. Mm. Well, because above a certain threshold, it's going to be interpreted as pain more than yeah. temperature, right? Like as soon as you get above a certain temperature threshold, your body's no longer like, oh, hot. Your body's like, fuck, ouch. Mm. It's like having yeah. cold hands and washing them under hot water. Yeah. It hurts. Mm. Yeah. Because your yeah, body's just like, yeah. can you fucking not do Ease me such into a large it, jump yeah. in temperature change? Like, we're going to experience this as pain because more than likely, if you're touching like something that's really, really hot, 
you're, it helps to experience that as pain because generally when you touch hot things, hot that something that hot is going to be hot, damaging bad. to your tissues, yeah. right? To your fingers, to your whatever. And it's going to be in your body's best interest to like get your hand the fuck away from that hot plate as quickly as yeah. possible to minimize how much damage is done. And so a temperature signal is not going to be quite as urgent to the brain as a pain signal. Um so that's why above above or below certain thresholds where they the temperature becomes damaging to your body, it becomes pain mm. instead of conscious temperature. Just because, yeah. yeah, we're hardwired to experience pain as a warning and have a reflex response to pain more than we are a reflex response to uh, temperature. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah. I don't know what it was about the menthol that saved me, but I guess it wasn't the temperature thing. I, I guess, could have yeah, been, it, was just it could all even be placebo. Like, yeah, you know. honestly. I don't know. I guess I'll just have to do some science with myself. I'll go to the shops today. <laughs> I'll buy some menthols. We'll see what happens. Honestly. <laughs> I'll report back um, my findings. I, I feel like science is asking you to make this sacrifice. <laughs> I'll be willing. Um, yeah. So, Christy, I hope that, that answered your listener question thoroughly and sufficiently. And my advice is, yeah, if it's cold, wear a jacket. Doesn't matter how much you're drinking. And, you know. And if moderation. you're drinking, maybe wear more layers then because you're making yourself well, more susceptible to the cold. Be dress appropriate for the outside temperature, not for your perception of the outside temperature. That's my advice. Ooh, so, like, if it's a hot day, you don't question. need to, like, extra rug up. But um, does that then, if that makes you more susceptible to losing heat, could you then be more susceptible to overheating as well with how it's bringing all of your blood to the surface and that? Does that mean you could more readily take in more heat? I mean, you might as you can more feel readily lose warm, more heat? but it won't, it won't make your core temperature warmer. I think actually you could be more susceptible to overheating because of dehydration. Because mm. alcohol dehydrates ah, you. True. Yeah, and, and yeah. can make you sweat more because of that perception of um, heat. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You absolutely could. And also if it is messing with your hypothalamus and just your ability to, you know, know what to do in terms of do I need to shiver or sweat or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. It it just you totally would lose your ability to thermoregulate. So the moral is alcohol fucks with you. Pretty (laughs) much. Well, we knew that though, right? Yeah. Alcohol messes with a lot of things. Yeah. Mm. I realized um, two weeks ago I was quite, uh, I was quite sick, had a bad flu. And I realized just how important hydration is mm. and how, because I couldn't keep, I couldn't keep any liquids down. Mm. So I couldn't hydrate. And because I was dehydrated, I was overheating because I couldn't sweat. Mm. And then because of that, I couldn't drink more and I couldn't It's just anything. this self-perpetuating yeah. cycle of like work. unpleasant. Oh. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, that's what, isn't that what the majority of hangover is? It's just like dehydration effects. Yeah. That's a so. huge part of it. Yeah. Like 90% of, of hangover it, cures I hear are like chug a liter of Powerade before you go to bed or have a whole bunch of water before you go to bed and you feel way better the next day. So it's just like mm. hydrate yourself, really. Hydration. Hydrate some of that is rest. also the more hydrated you are, the more likely you are to piss. And when you piss out the like, you know, when alcohol gets broken down into the body, it gets broken down into these kind of like toxic little components that make you feel sick and unwell and, and mm. gross. And, you know, you need to flush those out of your system to feel better. And drinking water and peeing more is a great way to do that. And yeah, yeah which is why it's also a good idea to drink a glass of water in between every drink because mm. that way you go to the toilet as well and keep mm. everything flushed out. And I think it's a, I think alcohol to metabolize it, you use two water molecules to each alcohol molecule. So mm. like you need to drink twice as much water as like pure alcohol because 
you're really just dehydrating yourself. Yeah. And it makes you pee. So you're de- you're you're peeing out more liquid and you're using up more liquid in your body. So mm. just so just don't drink alcohol. <laughs> well, you know, everything moderate in your moderation. Drinking. Everything, everything in, in moderation. moderation. Yeah, what a fun episode. I yeah. I feel I feel like I learned, which oh is I definitely learned. Um, yeah, and I hope I hope the listeners. I'm sure the listeners uh, got quite a bit out of that as well. And you know, if they absolutely loved everything that you had to say, Fearless, is there anywhere that people can uh, find you and learn more? Uh, you can find me, not necessarily learn more. I have <laughs> a, a Twitter account. I think it's Fearless.Tivisol, something. It's, I'm pretty sure it's just my name. I'll chuck it in the description. <clears throat> yep. Um, but I have, I think, reposted one, one thing a year ago. <laughs> so uh, my uh, New Year's resolution starting soon will be to... Uh, <laughs> starting five months <clears throat> into the year. Will be to uh, use Twitter more. Nice. Uh, and if you want to find us, as always, you can find us on social media at Curiosity Rat on Twitter or Instagram. We have a Facebook page, Curiosity Killed the Rat, and we also have a Patreon. You can find us, Curiosity Killed the Rat. Absolutely no pressure to give any money there, but, you know, if you have a spare dollar or two and appreciate the work that we put in, that's the place that you can you can help us out. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you learnt something. Smoke weed when you're 60, wear a condom, don't drink too much. Bye. Curiosity. Kill the rat.